two, one. Let's talk about Mark's Baby, as the 1990s band Salt and Pepper once quoth. Welcome to episode 161 of the Scottish Liberty podcast. If you don't know today's guest, you really should. Michael Rechtenwald, his most uh, recent book is called Beyond Woke. He got into a little bit of trouble on Twitter as you may have heard on the Tom's Woods show or on his various other appearances. However, uh, we're going to talk about Marxism today and I feel like Michael's a really amazing guest on this topic because he used to be a Marxist for his sins until he was driven out with whips, chains, barbed instruments, sharp objects from the Academy for his unorthodox news. In fact, the name of your book coming out in December is... The Thought Criminal. The Thought Criminal. Is that you? Are you the Thought Criminal? Uh, it's a novel, so... Oh, wow. Yeah. Is, is it based on your experiences of sort of being the victim of wokeness and political correctness? Well, I mean, it's based on a lot of people's experience of that. But the main character, you could say it, there's some parts of me in there. He was a professor and he gets driven out of the academy. So, yes. Um, and... That's what happened to you. So I wanted to talk a bit about Mark Spot on a little bit of a high level because some people that know, that listen to the show, know that I'm writing a book on Marx and Mises at the moment. And that the, one of the most rewarding things about it has been learning more about Marx, believe it or not. But so when you actually get down to some of the things that he actually believed, they're a little bit crazy. And I think even a lot of people that identify as Marxists, if you said, do you believe this? Do you believe that? They would go, well, no, I don't exactly believe that. I mean, come on. They might even be surprised that Marx believed those things. I mean, would you agree? Would you disagree? Yeah, there's some things in there that uh, uh, I think that people would be surprised with uh, that they wouldn't necessarily embrace. You know, so it's been a very flexible um, theory, a theory of history and a very flexible theory in terms of like auxiliary clauses that people can drop off or pick up. And uh, that's why there's so many branches in neo-Marxists and, uh, and so on. Uh, one of the things that I've found challenging is it's pretty much, it's pretty much difficult to find any claim of Marx, which he didn't somehow repudiate at some point in a letter to Engels or someone else at some point. So it's, it's almost hard to say Marx believed this or he believed that because someone can wave a letter in your face and say, well, look, I mean, he wasn't really a determinist because in this letter to this person, he said this. And I'll go like, OK, right, OK. But most of cap das Kapital does seem to suggest otherwise. So, um, yeah. He can be a bit hard to pin down. What is one of the most wacky things that you think Marx believed that, um, that might interest people? Uh, yeah, well, I think the uh, uh, sort of racist overtones of some of his uh, ideas would be interesting, I think. Uh, especially Engels, actually, more so than Marx. They really believe that, uh, you, you know, like, for example, the colonization of the uh, what is the Americas now was probably good because it, 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 it expedited the development of capitalism and anything that expedites the development of capitalism is also expediting the development of socialism. So if primitive peoples, and he would use that word, 
you know, have to get killed in the, in the meanwhile. That's, that's the way it goes. Uh, and he did hold distinctions like that between the primitive and civilized. Yes, yeah, so one of his ideas was historical justification, which is that something might look pretty bad from our standpoint, but it was necessary at the time when it happened. So that obviously like leaves the door wide open to atrocities like those committed in the Soviet Union, because you go, well, I mean, it looks pretty bad to kill all these kulaks, but it's historically justified. Right. And, so, then, and everything becomes a, everybody becomes a sacrifice to an abstraction. The abstraction becomes the rule. And then people are just in, in, incidences of a particular um, form or class and then these instances of these things don't matter. It's the form that matters. And you can be sacrificed as a member of a form. Doesn't matter what your individual rights might have been or uh, might, your individuality might be concerned. That doesn't matter at all. Um, so there's a lot of abstraction and the sacrificing of uh, incidences to the, to the abstraction. Right, so I think Marx gets off the hook a lot because he's generally considered to have had his heart in the right place. And he was, he was just a humanitarian utopian that was longing for a better future for all of humanity. Mm -hmm. Oh, but um, I mean, do you think there's a humanitarian in Marx? Well, there was an earlier phase. There's some, some thinkers that divide Marx into... Uh, two phases, basically the humanist phase and the structuralist phase. The humanist phase would be the early philosophical manuscripts in which he seems to have a concern for the, for the human subject and its agency. Uh, and uh, he seems to be a more of a humanist in, in the, his outlook. But by the time you get to capital, so they say, um, there's a new structural, structuralist phase. Uh, in which uh, the determinism comes in and, right. uh, and which uh, isn't concerned with the human subject as such. The human subject becomes an object in a system. Um, and that came with the level of abstraction that he gets into in, in, Cap, in Das Kapital. So I want to talk a little bit about the theory of history and class, yeah, the class struggle and maybe um, ideology and these concepts, maybe even alienation, these concepts yeah. are pretty good in Marx. But before we do that, I would be interested in hearing when you identified as a Marxist, which of Marx's ideas do you think that you subscribe to made you a Marxist? Because a lot of the time when I talk to Mar Marxists, and I know quite a lot about Marx, Marxism now so I'll be like do you believe this and they'll be like well no I don't exactly believe that and I'll be like well do you believe this and they're like well kind of but like and I'm like well what makes you a Marxist then if you if you if you know if you're not like yeah I, I agree with that like so for you what what were your essential points of agreement well the essential points of agreement and I think uh essential to being a Marxist is uh the notion of class struggle history is the history of class struggle I think that's one of the most important uh, premises. Uh, and um, you have to have some belief in the notion of exploitation. Um, 
under capitalism. You, you, if you don't, and most people and many Marxists don't even know what it is, that it's a very, it's a very um, discreet operation. It's not some sort of a nebulous thing like oppression. It's, it can be pointed to in, in, in very quantitative terms. And most Marxists don't even know that. Um, they just think basically in terms of sort of like this tribal warfare of the working class and assorted uh, interest groups against the bourgeoisie. But the, the, the whole thing is premised on the labor theory of value. And if you don't believe in, the, in that, I've, I've actually talked to Maoists who don't even subscribe to it. This, that's not important for me. Well, where does exploitation come from if not, if it doesn't hinge on the labor theory of value, which it does. Um, so without the labor theory of value, you're not a Marxist in my view. I, was, I held to the labor theory of value, the notion of a surplus extraction at the point of production, um, the uh, uh, alienation, definitely in, in terms of Marxism, not some sort of uh, existentialist notion of alienation. And it was very discreet. Again, the notion of alienation is very discreet in Marxism. I liked the scienticity of it. I won't call it the scientific uh, quality. I'll call it its scienticity or its uh, pretensions towards science. Uh, and uh, uh, the notion of, uh, from the Frankfurt School, I guess the notion of human emancipation, uh, universal human emancipation. Uh, that, those were some of my main okay. axioms. Right, great. So maybe we can just unpack these a little bit. So when you say the history of class struggle, the communist Marx, the communist manifesto basically says all of human history is the history of class struggle and those manifest differently um, through different in different periods of history. We're going to circle back to the theory of history. As for the point on exploitation, is that simply the idea that the capitalist pays you X for your labor. When he sells the product, he gets X plus Y. So the difference between what he pays you and his expenses and basically most of Y should, you, you should be entitled to most of Y. Uh, y minus Z, Z being, you know, the capital costs and it other, is pretty, It is pretty clearly that. That's what right, it okay. is. Is that all it is? Is, no, that is all it is. That's all it is. Okay. So in order for that to be true, the, um, I mean. Costs are counted in, in, in terms of the, um, so you have a, a product, you have always have raw materials, which already have value embedded in them. Right. And value is based on the socially average labor time necessary for the production of any particular uh, commodity. So okay. He accounts for individual differences, uh, cultural differences, uh, uh, technological differences, and so forth. It's interesting because James Mill wrote earlier, demand for commodities is not demand for labor. Um, and that seems to, so, so that idea was already there before Marx was writing. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, the labor theory of value was too. Yeah, I um, mean, well, he, he, he's, yeah, he got the labor theory of value from Ricardo. Um, right. So, okay, that, that's clear. Now, alienation is an interesting thing because when people talk about alienation, a lot of people feel alienated by modern consumer capitalist society. And what they basically mean is they find their lives unfulfilling. 
that's yeah. not that's not exactly what Marx meant by alienation. As a you said, it was discrete. Could you explain that for us? Because that's yes. really interesting. Alienation is the is the fact that the laborer produces not under his own desiderata, but under the desiderata of the capitalists. That is, he's producing uh, on the at the behest of and at the command of and for the ends of the capitalists. So he's alienated from his labor because he's not producing something for his, based on his own self-determining uh, interests. He's producing it on, on the basis of the capitalist self-determining interests. And then there's a second aspect to alienation and that is the product of labor is alienated from the worker because it's not his. It's the capitalist for sale. Right. So, um, the, oh, so the product is sold and this is alienating. Well, that's funny, you know, because I was over at my friend's house the other day looking after their kids and I wanted to make a nice big curry, but they were desperate to have fish fingers for dinner. And I really, ha I, I didn't even realize that those kids were exploiting and alienating me because I didn't get to cook what I wanted for dinner. Those damn kids. Everyone yeah. like everyone. the idea is so there Marx actually with the idea of alienation I think he inadvertently imports a, a particular humanist essentialism into the into the equation because you have to believe in an essential self from which something is alienated right for example labor you're you're working and you have to believe that there's some self there that has an essential identity from which your labor is alienated. So you import there an essentialism into the matter. Whereas, and, and that's a, also, you have to import thereby a humanism in there that you believe in the subject as a human unitary uh, singular thing or singular consciousness or what have you. And that it has its own self-determining interests and all that. Uh, that kind of is a, uh, it gets folded into a, a systemic uh, structural um, or overarching analysis that loses the subject in, in history of, in some sense, because everything is determined to, you know, capitalism goes, goes through these various, I mean, we go through these various stages and socialism is an inevitability. Well, what happened to the human subject there? It just disappears. Oh, so there seems to be a self-contradictory yeah. point there. And uh, in Theory and History by Ludwig von Mises, he points out a whole bunch of stuff where Marxism seems to be contradictory in, in Chapter 7. In fact, a lot of my book is drawing on Mises' critiques from Chapter 7 of Theory and History. There mm -hmm. seems to be quite a lot of these um, these contradictions in Marx, but I was thinking about this. If you look at the Marxist... There's point... always been a, a balance between, there's been this tightrope walk between what they call the voluntarism of Marxism. That is where the subjects, the subject is, is emphasized as in say Lukash later, who was basically banished from the party uh, because of his views. Um, he was, he was banished from the, he, he was um, thrown out of the party because he was too voluntaristic. And that means he, he was too, too subjectivistic, too much emphasis on the subject and not on, on the determining structural uh, forces. Um, so 
he emphasized, Lukács did the subject in history, the subject has to have self-consciousness of himself as a commodity. And this consciousness of himself as a, both a commodity and as a uh, subject in history is the conflict that arises that makes, uh, without the self-consciousness of the self as a commodity, there is no revolutionary potential, according to Lukács. Right, okay. So the thing is, Marx believed that capitalism would immiserate, impoverish the workers. It would make them more and more poor, and then their subjective experience would become so horrible that they'd rise up in revolution. That obviously didn't happen. They got richer, not poorer. That's, but, yeah, that's true, and there was a contradiction even in the premise, though, even before the historical outcome, because also Marx said that there was a point beyond below which a capitalist could not pay a worker, and that was the point where, where, which made them unable to reproduce themselves at the point of production. If they couldn't be reproduced at the point of production, then, then capitalism would fail. So this idea of continual immiseration is contradicted by that baseline from under which they can't go. Right. So I guess... And then there's the sense of culture that needs are socially determined. So what is the baseline? Because you, you can't tell what's, what's absolutely necessary or, or what is socially determined. For example, I need to have a cell phone, I think. Is that a social need? Is that, is that a socially constructed need? Or is that some sort of an essential need? It's really almost impossible to differentiate between real needs and fabricated needs. Right. So, but I think it's easy for, coming, uh, coming back to the point on alienation, it's easy for socialists to dismiss this as not that important because even though Marx did later, Marx did later repudiate repudiate the labor theory of value, sorry, not the labor theory of value, he repudiated the iron law of wages, the idea that that the, because he saw, he saw, he's, I mean, he couldn't deny the evidence of his own eyes, but like if I was a Marxist, I would be able to say, well, the thing is, you know, Anthony, this is coming back to your essential humanist point, um, yeah, Marx thought thought that it, that workers would get poor, but that's not really that relevant because the point is most of Marx's critique of capitalism was sociological rather than economic. He was saying, "Oh well, you know, cap- humans have this nature, you know, that longs to be free. Oh, I want to um, fish in the morning and uh, raise cattle in the afternoon and criticize in the evening, like." People just want autonomy. They just want to be free. And his, his point is that the, the working process of submitting to a capitalist actually bends our personality out of shape. And that's his real problem with, the cap, yeah. with capitalism. His economic critique of capitalism is much less important than the fact that he thinks it's sociologically damaging to human beings. Well, that's absurd. I mean, why would he write three volumes of capital that are basically all economic treatises? Right. Uh, if uh, and that's those are the capstone projects uh, of Marxism. I mean, they would just say then you just stick with the, uh, you know, the uh, the philosophical manuscripts then, and uh, then you don't have an analysis of capitalism, which makes so they toggle back and forth. Okay. So then then you don't have an analysis of capitalism, which makes it necessary to um, 
overthrow. So right. when they get stuck in the uh, structural side, they'll toggle back to the humanist side. When they get stuck, stuck in the humanist side, they'll toggle back to the structuralist side. Right. It's a, it's a moving target. Okay, so it's hard to say that Marx's real critique was sociological and he, he, he was just saying that capitalism is bad for the human soul. Um, it, so, so I think one of the things you didn't mention when you said things that you believed when you were a Mar Marxist was the theory of history. And it's been very interesting to, to me to learn about because I think a lot of people are attracted to Marxism by his Marxist, by his class analysis. And you did mm -hmm. mention that, the class struggle. Because it seems to make sense to them that there's these capitalists and they're exploiting the rest of us. But from what I can see, the, the, like, the class struggle is secondary in Marx. It's the theory of history that comes first. Because the, the force that he thinks guides history manifests as the class struggle. But there's something that comes prior to that. Yeah, there is. It's this Hegelian dialectics. So, so, so I was recently you... talking with someone about, actually, in my class that I'm preparing for a Liberty Classroom for Tom Woods' site, libertyclassroom.com. You know, he stood Hegel on his head. Right. Mark stood Hegel on his head. Now, it's important to note that it was Hegel that he stood on his head. It's like if you take somebody and stick, stick them on their head, it's still that body, but the body is inverted. Right. So it's an inversion of Hegel. But it is Hegel that's inverted. So what comes along with Hegel? Hegel's dialectics uh, in particular, and his theory of history in terms of a teleological progress narrative towards a particular end. All that is imported and just materialized. Uh, it's, drawn, it's drawn into the material economic realm, whereas for Hegel, this was a, an idealist, um, was an idealist uh, narrative. Right, so Hegel believed that conflicts push history forward and and marx believed that as well um contradiction he would call it yeah he would call it contradiction and when he says contradiction he doesn't mean a logical contradiction as we right. usually understand he means forces right. that are in tension with each other but um can you explain basically how the means of production give rise to a given society in marx's view because i think well, that'd be interesting for people. yeah i mean in marxism the culture and even ideation itself, thoughts, ideology, all this is an ep epiphenomenon, basically. It's an epiphenomenon of the, uh, of the economic base. So it's a, basically, it's a base superstructure model. And that is the economic is primary and it produces the, the superstructural elements like culture, philosophy, everything. Uh, so this is one of the main things that he was after in the German ideology, which he wrote with Engels and in 1845, it was one of the philosophical manuscripts. And that is the idea that, his, you know, we, 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 his, his premises are we begin with real men and their real activity and blah, 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 and, and not with their ideas, not with their uh, imaginations, which are only functions of the economic base. Um, so his, his idea was very, he's materialist. Everything comes from matter and it's, it's a dialectical materialism, although they 
you know, you're not allowed to say that. It's historical materialism, as they call it. But why are you not allowed to say dialectical materialism? Uh, because there's Marxists who get out, bent out of shape with that because it's too Hegelian. Uh, okay. So uh, when they think that he's, he's, they would suggest that he took he stood Hegel on his head and then stripped him of everything but his you know liver. I, I don't know. I mean, but really he stood Hegel on his head and the whole body is there. Um, that is to say, his dialectical uh, process. Uh, the progress narrative, the teleological element, that it's heading towards a goal, etc. Right. So you, you, yeah. Okay. So all of this he borrows for Hegel, um, in other words, history is heading somewhere, right? And right. that's and and, but for Marx, materialist Hegelian, you know, which seems to be a contradiction in terms because when you remove the Weltgeist, which is the guiding principle in Hegelianism, you know, some kind of godlike thing that works mm. through the universe. What is there to give history a purpose? You know, my philosophy lecturer, one of my philosophy lecturers at uni said, there's no purpose without a purposer. He said, we shouldn't talk about the purpose of a stamen in a flower, that the purpose of it is to fertilize other flowers. Um, no, that might be the evolutionary function of it, but it's not got a purpose unless God exists. Yeah, he, he, he immunitized the eschaton, if you will, uh, of Hegel, and that he drew it into into the material. So there, there isn't the purpose. I guess would only be seen in the self consciousness uh, of those who are immunitized in the structure. Uh, made it's made imminent. So. It inheres, actually Hegel made it imminent too, because actually matter is, is merely the expression of spirit. And, mat, and spirit is immunitized in, in the material. So uh, it's, in that sense, it's, it's not that different from Hegel in the sense that he's immunitizing consciousness, which, which if any place there's going to be found purpose, it would be in the consciousness of those people. Now the question whether is whether he collectivizes consciousness like Hegel does. Because for Hegel, this is not the individual self-consciousness. This is the self-consciousness of absolute spirit. Um, so, and I think he does kind of collectivize it too, uh, because it doesn't matter what individuals think. Right, right. It doesn't, when you say it doesn't matter what individuals think, you mean in the grand scheme of history, right? The mm -hmm. driving force of history in Marx is the means of production. So you can have your wee thoughts and your debates and stuff like that, but ultimately it's going where it's going right. because the the means of production, the state stage of what does he say? The hand mill gives you feudal society, the steam mill gives you capitalist society. Whatever the hell that means, you know. Um, yeah, that's the more determinist elements. And actually, Engels was very, very, very impactful in this sense. Engels was a much more positivist uh, theorist. His much more determined. His history is the history of technology, period. Uh, right. Everything is, technology determines history for, uh, for uh, Engels. And uh, this is, uh, and actually after Marx dies, Engels takes over in a way in the second, inter second international and 
he emphasizes the deterministic elements much more. So it was kind of like, wow, he's the old man's out of here. So here we go. We're going to make this as determinist as possible. Um, Interesting. Yeah, you can find um, quotes from Marx repudiating pure determinism. At least I have in my studies. So he, he seems it's quite. It's one of these issues that heart seems quite hard to pin him down on. On one mm. hand, he's a determinist, and one hand, on the right. other hand, he believes in some form of free will. Um, so well, consciousness, consciousness is, is becomes important because false consciousness will, is necessary to overcome. The, the working class has to be. I mean, he wouldn't say working workers of the world unite. Why would they need to do anything if right. it was determined? Why would he have to call for them to do something? Why would he call on their voluntary action? their voluntary participation, their necessary, uh, you know, self-conscious collectivizing in order to uh, overcome or over and eventuate, I should say, something that is already determined historically. Right. So I think when I think of um, Marx's theory of history, it makes me think of a hermit crab that moves from one shell to another, what happens is the hermit crab gets too big for the shell and mm -hmm. then he needs to move out the shell and move into mm -hmm. another shell that's bigger in order to live yeah. in it. There seems to be something like that in Marx. What he's saying is the technology develops and as it develops, it comes to a point where the superstructure of society is holding it back from developing. Not the superstructure so much right. as the social relations. Oh, the tell social... me more about that. Tell me more about it's that. The, when the relations of production come into conflict, too much conflict, I guess, because they're in conflict under capitalism, I guess, anyway, anytime. When they come to in, in too much conflict with the relations of, of ownership, of social relations, then there, it precipitates a change. So... This has to be understood in, in terms of Hegel's dialectic of uh, quantity and quality. Whenever a, qual whenever a quantity reaches a certain point, it changes into a different quality. Um, so that, has, that is absolutely intrinsic there, although he doesn't spell it out, but the Hegel's dialectic of quantity and quality comes into play. A simple way of, and it's probably not, you know, perfectly analogous to what he was talking about, but like, if you put a, a pot of water on the stove and you turn on the heat, it's liquid until a certain point, and then it changes qualitatively into vapor. Right. Right. So, I mean, we, we had a chat about this once. We were talking about, I was trying to get an example of this. So, and, and we were saying, well, let's take feudal society, right? In a feudal yeah. society, only aristocrats can be rich, but you have this. And for a while, that's okay. You know, the means of production develop under that system. But then yeah. along comes a burgeoning capitalist class. Yeah. And this concept that only the aristocrats can get rich doesn't suit them at all. So you get a class conflict where the... It doesn't hold anymore because once you have uh, mer merchants in, in, involved, and this class starts to gain power by virtue of their economic power. They start to gain political power. So you see that the relations of production, which are inclusive of, of merchants and uh, the burghers and so forth, become 
too powerful economically such that the relations of uh, the social relations must change. The yeah. relations of production have gotten to a certain point that the social relations must change. And that's what bursts the bonds of feudalism. According yeah. To and, and support and presumably the same thing's going to happen eventually under capitalism. Now th this might be a little bit of a silly idea, like putting the cart before the horse, because you could say, well, at some point, you know, slavery didn't fulfill a function anymore in America, but actually slavery is a economically inefficient system. And maybe if they'd abolished it a hundred years earlier, um, America would have got an industrial revolution a hundred years earlier because there's no point inventing any machines when you've got access to free labor. Mm -hmm. So, but I mean, if we're going to be charitable, well, it wasn't free, but yeah. Okay. It wasn't yeah. exactly free. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it wasn't free because they had to feed them. They had to house them, clothe them, uh, provide law, you know, everything. So uh, it wasn't really free. Yeah. That's why it would be inefficient in a sense, because you couldn't, you know, under slavery, you don't really have exploitation per se. According to Marx or according to, okay. According to yeah. Marx, yeah. And he said that even slavery was acceptable in his own time, in its own time, because again, historical necessity. Mm -hmm. um, but he did send a letter to Lincoln praising him for freeing the slaves. Right. So. I got to turn off the ringer, sorry about that. That's okay. That was just our, I was about to start um, narrating an advert over the top of that uh, uh -huh. music. So, um, right, let's see. So there, this is an idea that I think people would find weird. The idea that the means of production determine society itself. And mm. I very rarely hear Marxists go on about this. They talk about the class conflict, but I want to say, look, the class conflict is only a manifestation of the means of production. If you don't accept that the means of production determine society, you're, you're, you're like, you're skipping a step. You're, you're going on to stage two without, I mean, am I right about that? That, that was my reading. Like that, this is one of the points I'm going to make in well, chapter two of my book. Uh, I mean, let's go back to Hegel to try to explicate this a little bit. So Hegel posits a thesis and an antithesis and out of which comes the synthesis. And this is the movement of history. It's a series of resolutions uh, of contradictions. So class struggle is the contradiction within capitalism. You have, the pro, you have the capitalist class and the proletariat. That's the thesis, antithesis, and out of them comes the third term, the class of society. So I would say that class struggle is the modus of the, of, of the it's the motor of history in Marxism. Right. right. So it's not as if it's secondary. It's actually intrinsic. It's like the engine that moves the car. Okay. So, so class struggle is the motor of history but class struggle so far as i understand it and this you know you could uh, it, that's only a manifestation of the means of production not in any particular time but they're still embedded in the whole the whole historiography of this notion of contradiction which is like the parts so it isn't extricable from the theory of history it is it is the actual these are the contents of the of the of the uh, of the of the of the theory of history. Okay. Interesting. 
so another thing I did hold on to is also as I believed in the uh, um, tendency for the rate of profit to to decline right uh, the law of the tendency of the rate of, of profit to de decrease or decline and that was based on the idea that um, that once you introduce new machinery and technology it, it it lowers the amount of labor actually invested in every commodity. Likewise, profit decreases and this, this produces a crisis. Right, so, but what, what I find, so when, when Mark says that, does he mean the rate of profit is declining across society or does he mean in any one company or industry? Because no, it's a tendency. So it, it's a tendency in all industries, that, right. especially since, you know, in almost every industry, you have new technology introduced. And when you introduce a new technology, it's generally for efficiency, speed of production. So every commodity has less labor embedded in it. it you know, because he looks at the technology, it embeds labor too, but it's, it's not embedding new value. It's a depreciation. So when a, when a machine runs to produce, say, newspapers, okay? Unfortunately, that imports the superstructure. <laughs> See, there is no real difference, okay? So at the base, the superstructure and the infrastructure are, so there's no way to discriminate them. Um, but every time that paper, that press runs, it's depreciating. So the value is being transferred from the, from the machinery into the commodity. So that's not counted as new value. It's just value that's there. Right. Right, right. New value is added by the labor. So okay, the less yeah. labor that goes into the new value, the lower the rate of profit. Right. It's interesting because I think Mises basically <coughs> also uh, believe that, sorry, also believe. Yeah, you, you, you froze for a second. You froze for a second. All right. I believe that Mises also would say that there's a tendency for profits to fall in all industries, but for a different reason. It's just because if you've got high profits and that tends to attract competitors. And the, yeah. yeah. So, so that's why the economy needs to keep on moving and people need to keep on inventing better stuff because of the tendency of profits to fall. But Marx is saying something quite different from Mises. Yeah. yeah it's not about the comp well, competition could drive it down too, but there's, that's not an intrinsic element. So there's, for Marx, this is intrinsic to production. Um, that once you, once the industry develops and incorporates new technology, new machinery, etc., that less labor is embodied in every commodity. And therefore, there's less, uh, there's less surplus value uh, produced and therefore less profit. Right, and, and is that what leads to crises under capitalism, according That's to Marx? That's one of the crises, yeah. Right. I thought it was the main one, but... Are, are there other ones that are worth mentioning? Uh, well, if, if you consider Marx's belief that the capitalism tends towards monopoly, right. uh, that's another one because when you have monopolies, you have less comp competition for labor. This drives down wages um, and also creates more immiseration. And this will lead to class conflict.
No, I agree with them about that. I mean, the monopoly does drive down labor costs and uh, that's why I'm against them. Right. Okay. Yeah. 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 So, So one of the interesting things is Marx basically says that the ideas that people have are like not really a driving force in history. This is like the complete opposite of Mises. Um, who thinks that ideas drive history. He says you only basically even have those ideas because the stage of history you're in and the developmental stage of the means of production. Can you elucidate on that at all? Because that sounds like a pretty wacky yeah, I mean, idea to people. Yeah, it's... Um, so basically consciousness and culture and ideation, these are epiphenomena that develop out of a particular stage of time, history and they're completely contingent upon that stage. Um, and that certain ideas couldn't arise except by virtue of that particular period. Um, let me give you an example, which I've used myself actually. Uh, Darwin, let's take Darwin, for example, his theory of evolution. Uh, a Marxist would read that and say, I mean, a smart one. No, no, I'm not trying to hand myself this on a pat back, but this didn't come directly from me. Marx would say that Darwin's notion of natural selection depends on competition and the idea, and also it depends on mobility, like uh, uh, upward mobility of particular um, species or variations, that it depends on the idea of competition and it depends on variation and it depends on um, fluidity rather than a static social order. So you couldn't have derived the theory, Mark, uh, Darwin's theory of evolution in the feudal period, for example. You, you couldn't see it because there wouldn't be the, you needed to see class conflict and movement. It was too static of a system to, to be able to visualize the idea of class, a class changing its status like a species or a variety might. Did Marx see the, the move from feudalism to capitalism as an, broadly speaking, a good thing? Or did he think that there was very specific things that were worse for the individual under capitalism as compared to feudalism? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, he thinks, first of all, it's necessary. In under orthodox Marxism, it's a necessary stage. Uh, secondly, um, he, his his critique in, the, in the, for example, in the Communist Manifesto, it's it's vicious, vicious against. It's a vicious attack on bourgeois life, life under the bourgeoisie. Right. In a sense, it borrows a little bit from um, what he would call in, and he did call in the manifesto feudalistic socialism. That is, there's, there's some wistfulness about the softer, more delicate and, you know, the noblesse oblige of feudalism that's lost under capitalism, under icy calculation, as you might put it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think he seemed to be saying that, you know, it's so funny how so many of these things are not that far away from what socialists say say today that have not even read Marx. It's like, I think he was saying, 
Well, the thing is, under capitalism, everything's reduced to the almighty dollar, and people just see other people as means to an end. Cash nexus. You know, cash nexus. Yeah, that was Carlyle's phrase. Tom. Uh, Tom right. Yeah. It's just basically everything's everything's reduced to an exchange under capitalism. Right. right? And I think he was saying that wasn't true under feudalism. I think he was saying that's one thing that's worse under capitalism than feudalism. It's like, oh, no, everything's just seen as a means to an exchange. Even your family, even your children, you know. Right. Everything is mediated by commodities. Right. Um, it's uh, social relations become the relations between commodities. This is what he, he suggested. But I think what's happening here is like Marx is when when we come to this idea that Marx had, which is that the capitalist process bends us out of shape, mm-hmm. it's not just being bossed around all day, and it's not just not getting to sell the product produce of your own labor, which I think he said that people did get to do to a degree under feudalism. You know, they got to actually own. They kept they part had. of their yeah. They yeah. kept like a farmer would keep part of their. Uh, the crops, yeah. Right, right. And I think he was saying, this is going to affect you when you go home as well. You can't just, oh, well, you know, I'm off at at six o'clock and then I go home and I hang out with my wife and kids and I get to relax. He's saying, no, 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 no. Even your relationship with your wife and kids, uh, your solidarity with your people of your own class is compromised because you need to compete with them. And he's saying the working day shapes you irreversibly so you can't just leave your work at home it's more than the working day it's the totality of the system right that your leisure only becomes time to repair yourself and prepare yourself for reproducing yourself at the point of production the next day and the frankfurt school would go off on this quite a bit yeah yeah I, I, i meant to mention that because one of the examples i take of this to the extreme is you know adorno said He's one of the, the members of the Frankfurt School for people who don't know. He's a philosopher of music. But I mean, there's lots of people who think the market turns out shitty crap music. Okay, that's not a weird position to hold. But it's when Adorno says, well, the reason why people like this crap is because of capitalism, right? You know, yeah. under, so, under, under communism, they're, they're going to have a very sophisticated taste in music. But it's only because they only like repetitive music because they, they spend all day working in a factory. And that, repetitive function, yeah. yeah that, that's a pretty wacky idea. Uh, can you give more examples of the weird things that um, people from the Frankfurt School think? Well, if you look at the essay, The Culture Industry, Enlightenment, Enlightenment as Mass Deception, what, he's basic, what they're basically, and it's, it's written with uh, the, uh, Max Horkheimer, Theodore Adorno and Max Horkheimer write that as part of the the book Dialectic of Enlightenment, 1947. And uh, what they suggest is that culture has, under industrial capitalism, simply become another industry. And the mass reproduction destroys its art quality. Right. Uh, And so he's not really blaming the consumers for their tastes, like, say, T.S. Eliot would in The Wasteland. Right. He's blaming the system for producing the garbage that's that's being you know promulgated by the culture industry, uh, and the culture industry creates um, it. It loses individual characteristics by virtue of the fact that it has to be mass, mass produced. So, individual, it loses its individual character. Right. Uh, 
flourishes, but intrinsically it's individual character such that it starts to resemble the machinery itself. Right. Uh, and, uh, you know, he says, you know, for example, a film star might flop, you know, might fluff his shock of hair, but this is just an added flourish onto the mechanical reproduction of the, of the commodity. It's just, a, it's a, it's actually a false sign of individuality. Right. And, and this is why I always come back to the sociological point in Marx personally, because I feel like why libertarian minded people lose, well, apart from the fact that our ideas are harder to explain than their ideas is, people can put down any crap thing in society down to, oh, well, it's all just capitalism's fault, by which, you know, they mean the market. So right. if, you're not, if you're not happy, if you've not got a good relationship, you know, it's capitalism's fault. Yeah, I would see people on Facebook, for example, when I was a Marxist and had thousands of Marxist friends. And, you know, they would say, shitty day, came home, blah, 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 capitalism. I mean, yeah. they would just, that's yeah. what they would say. Yeah, but, but the thing is, they say, well, you know, capital, and Mark said this as well, it makes us greedy, it makes us acquisitive, it makes us competitive, it makes us blah, blah. They never think that maybe we have a market economy because humans have a predisposition to these kinds of attitudes. But like, you know, to be, to want more, to be acquisitive. Any possible thing that is wrong with the human, I guess maybe this is why Christians were somewhat immune to Marxism for a while because they already believe that human nature is flawed, right? There's original mm. sin and all that. So they mm. always already have an excuse for why people are acquisitive or greedy or stab each other in the back or are competitive right. or want a higher place in the social order. It's because man's fallen. But mm -hmm. from Mar from, for Marxists, all of this is because of greedy, evil capitalism. The system, yeah. Uh, but but I, I, I wouldn't mind if they said that you know, this is really bad, therefore we should uh, reform the public schools and stuff like that. But when, whatever complaints they have about capitalism, it's never blamed on the government being in bed with big business or, or anything mm. like that. It's always blamed on what remains of the free market. It's always an attack on the market economy yeah, as right. such. Mm -hmm. So, Yeah, Marcuse said, that, 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 Marcuse said in uh, One Dimensional Man, it would be the greatest achievement of civilization to do, to get rid of the free market. Right, right, exactly. And I, I feel like it's kind of like, it's always this thing where your neighbor comes over and punches you and the neighbor is the government. And then you go, well, it's the market's fault. And it was like, well, but, but, but the government did that. Like, you know, if you say, well, you know, the government, you're, you're saying there's all these sociological and psychological problems in society where the government has the kids in school for 11 to 13 years. Why are you blaming the market? Like they come well, out. That's because they think that they think that the state is own, the owners and controllers of the state are the dominant class. Right. So they would call the state a capitalist organ. Yes. Yes. So, so under capitalism, the state is only there to represent the interests of the bourgeoisie and the education system's not so crap because it's not just They're crap. They're trying to produce idiots on purpose who will right. do stupid jobs for a living. That's yeah, I know. 
but that's the opposite of what the capitalists want because if you're very qualified they can make far more profit from selling your services than if you're an mm -hmm. idiot like for me as an employer I want excellent, highly trained staff that I don't have to train myself. It's better for me as an employer if the government does a great job of educating you. But what if they're reading Dostoevsky at lunchtime? <laughs> right. That's, that's what, true. That's right. what they would say. Like, what if their individual self-determined needs come into conflict with your need for them to produce X, Y, Z? That's what they would say. Well, this, is, this battle is going to rage on because I personally suggest if there's one people who benefit from people being a bunch of idiots, it's definitely not the capitalists, it's the government. Because the if state. They, yeah, if people are incapable of providing for themselves, well, well then... The they, power. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, then they need... When they, 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 they can't provide their own health care, so the government needs to provide Yeah, I mean, there was a real, there's a real big problem in lack of differentiation and uh, I'd say lack of granularity yes. in this notion because they don't take in, there's no sense that there's a state class. Right. That there's a class of people that, whose interests are involved with the growing and the and thriving and uh, differentiation and continual uh, development of the state. Right. They think the state is just this thing that the capitalist picks up and bludgeons you over the head with. And yet they support all the state programs, like the state provision of healthcare, education, um, anything, anything you can think of that the state gives them, uh, that the state seeks to provide, they tend to be in favor of. They don't go, oh, well, you know, the... <laughs> the why would we want this state that's a, a bludgeon of the bourgeoisie to bludgeon us to death with providing healthcare? That's ridiculous. Right. They, they don't see the conflicts between, see there's a lack of you know, granularity of seeing if there's a class conflict, there's a, also, there's, if there's a class, if we say class conflict as a, an, an a priori given, right. well, what about the conflict between the state and, and certain capitalists? If right. not all exactly. yeah. you know. So they don't look at that. There is no conflict. So they, don't, they race or cover over or paper over those conflicts. I definitely relate when you say there's a lack of granularity here, because I think what they tend to do is there's this thing called capitalism and everything I don't like about the society is capitalism. So it doesn't matter if the state does it or it doesn't matter if private industries does it. If I don't like it, it's capitalism. If I do like it, then it's a socialist program, right? So, right. so, yeah, healthcare, you know, government provided healthcare, that's a socialist program because I like it. But um, government handing out subsidies to farmers, I don't agree with that. So that's a capitalist program. It's like, I think as libertarians, we have a technology to go, well, look, if it's voluntary, then it's capitalist. If it's non-voluntary, then it's not capitalist. And it would be good if we could abandon the term capitalism, but I don't think... Oh, I totally agree. The word, uh, I did a, a study yeah. of the word and its usage. I mean, it's never been used except almost 90% of the time since its very first use, which was negative. It's a pejorative term. It's I know, I know. Uh, and it would have been useful if we could save the world word liberalism or something like that and use that instead of capitalism if say Ayn Rand and Ludwig von Mises had chosen to call capitalism liberalism or free market economy or free market economy that would be useful yeah. that but 
Unfortunately, I don't think we can put the baby back in the... Uh, sorry, the, the, I'm mixing my metaphors there. I don't yeah. think we can put the genie back in the bottle. So I'm forced out here to constantly defend capitalism for better for better. Yeah, yeah we have to live with the word they've handed us, which is yeah. tarnished beyond belief. From its very first use, which was in uh, England in, I think... Uh, seventeen. I mean, it's pretty. It's pretty late. It's a, it's a late outcropping. Actually, it came. I'd have to go back to the OED. Right. I wrote well, about it in uh, in uh, Google Archipelago. Okay. Yeah, that's another one of Michael's books, which you should definitely pick up. But it's interesting how many of the tactics that we see the left use against us today are all to be found in Marx, and it's just the same stuff. Like, uh, I think it's twenty and. In um, chapters 25 and 26 of This Capital, he basically uh, blames colonialism and imperialism on the market economy, right? Whereas a, a libertarian would say, well, you know, that's not actually the free market. That's not actually capitalism because that was funded by the state, you know? So yeah. it's we, we see the same exact tactics. It's a way for the state to enrich itself. Yeah. By virtue of taxes, tariffs, and other mechanisms. Uh, um, so I guess uh, that may actually be enough for for one show. We've covered quite a lot. Oh, okay. Right? Because, uh, it was really <laughs> yeah. fun speaking to you. Is there, and, unless there's anything else that you you want to add about the continuing relevance of Marx or yeah, any well, other points? I just want to add this about leftism in, in general. Uh, it seems to be a series of, I've been doing, you know, like this in doing this course that I'm putting together, I've come to the conclusion that leftism is a series of digging, of digging, imagine, making imaginary problems and then continually trying to solve them. Uh, and then, you know, so like postmodern theory is a way of solving the imaginary problems that, cap, that uh, Marxism posed for it, uh, and things like that. So the leftism is like this continual struggle with imaginary imaginary ghost-like problems uh, and then uh, continually trying to change the terms of the problem so that we can get out of it or or not. In the case of some nihilists, there's no getting out of anything uh, or not. So that's basically all I wanted to add. Do you want to say anything yeah. about that? Oh, I'd love to because I actually think that a lot of this does actually become... Just basically from people having very compulsive minds, especially very intelligent people, uh, like they're thinking all the time. And the only thing they can think do is think. Like I think a lot of the reason why middle class university students are so into socialism is it gives them a lot to think about. Right. They, f they feel like they're above working in a bar or a restaurant or a cafe. But they couldn't come out and say, well, do you know what? I've got an IQ of 110, 120. I shouldn't be working in a cafe. That's below me. So they have to say the whole system is wrong and no one should have to work for a boss. Uh, uh, do you agree with that? Yeah, I think that's true. Uh, yeah, the university student is, is inculcated with uh, a lot of dissatisfaction. And... Uh, if anything, what, what I would say the university system does is, is provide you with a framework for which to be miserable. Right. Uh, 
<laughs> and that's really what I'll leave it at that. Right, right. Yeah. Once, I, once I was released from this shit, excuse my language, you know. I don't mind. And I could have, I have another thing I could say that's kind of funny, but when I Go said that Mark, Mark stood Hegel on his head, then he yeah. proceeded to suck his dick. Right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, if I could say anything about my own journey is coming out of leftism has been the most liberating thing. It's so unbelievable. Wow. The, the, the bondage that's really mental when right. it comes down to it. It's just incredible. Right. And, and I can speak, I've spoken to that before myself because see, when I was a leftist, if I went into the supermarket, I would think, oh, this is so terrible, this big... <laughs> You know, this, you, you know what I mean? I'd be yeah. like, oh, we have 50 products to choose from. Ah, what a fucking I know, I know. bullshit. Yeah, yeah, but, but I thought they were exploiting people. I thought, yeah. they were, I thought they were putting local businesses out of business. Whereas right. now I go into a supermarket and I'm like, wow, look at all the stuff that came all <laughs> over, from all over the world just for me. It really was. Produced for you. Yeah, exactly. it was, it was so liberating for me as well um, to escape being a lefty just because it gives you such a bleak outlook in the world. Bleak. Yeah. Bleak outlook, yeah. And, it, and then you have to work your way into all these, through all these problems that are imposed on you yeah. by, this, by this ideology. Well, there you go. Uh, I'm glad we both escaped, Michael. We're survivors. Yeah. We're survivors yeah. of left. Maybe we should get um, our own pins, you know, for people who converted from leftism to yeah. signify that they survived it. Well, thanks very much. Uh, I really appreciate your help in <clears throat> sort of elucidating and um, demystifying marks for me and for everyone else. And um, uh, I look forward to speaking to you more in the future. It's good to know that you're out there. You've got a unique thing to offer the movement because you know from inside what it was like to be a dedicated Marxist and uh, I, re I really appreciate having the inside view. Where should people go if they want more from you? Yeah, it's just michaelrechtenwald.com. That's uh, Michael, M-I-C-H-A-E-L, Rechtenwald, R-E-C-T-E-N-W-A-L-D, one word, dot com. Everything's there. Excellent. Buy his books. Right. Good night, everyone. I hope you enjoyed the show.